Amen. Amen. We are so grateful to have a God that does deserve our worship, even as we are so undeserving to worship him. He is so deserving of the worship that we have. We're just grateful um, to God for all of his goodness, all of his his ways. He is so wise in his ways and he's so gracious and kind towards us. We are just excited to be back in the house of the Lord just once again. Um, we're just always grateful to have this privilege, to have this right um, that we have in order to be able to worship God and to be able to fellowship among um, the body of believers. And we're just thankful to God for everything that he's doing in our life. So I am uh, particularly I'm excited in a different way to preach today's sermon because you've probably taken note if you've seen um, what the sermon is about or if you heard what I said last week that we're talking this week about rest. And I will be honest, there are some sermons that I come in, I feel fully loaded, like I have a good grasp of it. It's something that I may do particularly well. And then there are are just some sermons that are going to challenge me personally. They challenge me as I prepare them, and I hope that they're going to challenge you. And this is going to be one of those sermons today. And I'll be honest with you, you know, when I have seen or heard about people preaching sermons on rest, looking at the topic of rest, I'll be quite honest that there is a tendency, even for myself, to kind of roll my eyes. You know, because I'm thinking, wow, what a waste of a sermon for us to talk about rest when we could be talking about action. But I think the reason why I've probably rolled my eyes at that is because I think deep down within the recesses of my heart, I probably knew that I wasn't actually fulfilling this component of what is required of me the way that I should. And I've heard recently a lot of um, sermons that are looking at rest and analyzing them. And there are some pastors that have preached whole um, series on that. And I wanted to make sure that, one, I understood what the Bible actually communicates about rest. But I actually want to make sure that I'm doing what's right in my own life. And if I could be, you know, candid about it, I don't really find a lot of fulfillment in rest. In fact, it's one of the things that Christy gets on me quite often is she says that I just don't know how to rest. She says I'm a busy body. And I found even within myself that in the moments that I should be resting, there's this anxiousness that happens in my mind and in my heart because I feel like if I'm resting, I'm not doing something. And so most often I just find a reason to be busy, even though I may not necessarily be productive. Some of my business has led to me remodeling whole bathrooms because I feel like there is something I should be doing. But what I'm learning and what I learned in preparing this sermon is that in those moments, we collectively are going to have to learn how to press into the rest of God. The rest has been provided for us in Jesus Christ and actually analyze and see and assess what that actually means. Now, Partially the reason why I feel the way I do and perhaps you may feel the same way is because we live in a culture of busyness. Not only do we live in a culture of busyness, but we also live in a culture that says your value is based on how much work you're able to do. One of the first questions you ask somebody after you've met them and you get their name and things like that, what do you do? What kind of work are you in? Because there's a part of us that feels like we can value that person if we know what that person does. 
But what we need to look at today is that our value is not found in our business. It is not found in our work, but our value is going to be rooted, as we should know, in Jesus Christ. And so, as I said, I was partially motivated to preach this sermon because I'd heard of some other prominent pastors preaching about rest and having a Sabbath rest and creating a rest, a Sabbath rest for yourself and honoring the Sabbath as we are instructed to do. But is that actually rooted in truth, knowing that we are New Testament believers? And so we're going to look at this and ultimately land on what true rest for the believer actually looks like. So we're going to go on a bit of a journey in the word today, but we're going to settle somewhere. And I think we're going to all feel prayerfully, not just restful, but we're going to also be relaxed and refreshed in what we have learned about what true rest is. So to begin, let's go to Exodus chapter 31 verse 12. So keep your Bibles open and with you. We're going to do a lot of Bible surfing. We're going to hear that Baptist air conditioner if you have one that flips. I like to hear that. So Exodus 31 and 12. And it reads, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know what I, the Lord, that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. Holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to look at something that perhaps is not of value to many of us, but is really important for us to understand in our walk as believers, God. I just pray that after we complete this sermon and we complete our time together, that we will know what it means to press into your rest, to lean into you and and what it means to find true rest in you. That is our prayer. It is in Jesus name we pray. Amen. All right. So in a sermon that is addressing rest, if you actually listen to what this text just said, you probably don't feel particularly restful after hearing it. It says if you don't keep the Sabbath, you're going to be killed. If you don't keep the Sabbath, you're going to be cut off from the people. And so if I were an Israelite during that time, I don't know about you, but I would have been afraid to pick up something too heavy on the Sabbath in fear that, Lord, like, am I doing work? Am I am I violating the Sabbath? There would have been a great deal of fear in my mind about what I should be doing on the Sabbath. And I think it's interesting because we have seen today Almost almost a law like return to people who say you have to have a Sabbath day. You need to be taking a Sabbath one day of the week where you set aside nothing but you and God time. But is that actually rooted in what is effective for us as believers now? And many of them who defend this approach 
who defend taking the Sabbath say, well, we're commanded in the Ten Commandments to take a Sabbath. In the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, we have been told that we should take a Sabbath. But what is the spirit of that law that was written? I talk about this all the time, but one of the mistakes that we make as believers when we have been given instruction by God, we often lean too heavily on the letter of the law, negating what the spirit of that law and why it was written. So when God was establishing his created order, the Bible says that he rested. But why? Let's look at it. It says in our text, let's go back to it. The people should keep the Sabbath observing the Sabbath throughout the generations as a covenant forever. On the seventh day, he, God, rested, not just rested, and was refreshed. That's what it says. So obviously we know that God doesn't need rest, right? We should know that. In fact, if God does need rest, we're all probably in trouble. So we know that if God is resting, God is not resting because it is something that he needs God is resting because it was something that we needed. And so we have to understand what that means. And so the first point of today's sermon is that God was setting a precedent. God was setting a precedent. God was setting the expected pattern of behavior then for the Israelites. But it goes back to the spirit of that law and not the letter of it. Whenever we are just looking towards the letter of the law regarding any of the commandments, that command immediately becomes a prison to us. And that is not the intent of any of the commandments, specifically this one. That's not the spirit of what it means. If we go back to the garden, I've mentioned this before, we have to understand that before there was a fall, before there was sin, there was work. So we know that God does not establish work in his created order as a response to sin. But we see that as a response to sin, God gave us the obligation, the requirement that we should take a day of rest according to the Ten Commandments. So if work itself is not a response to sin, that means that it was given to us pre-fall for our enjoyment. That is why we were given jobs to glorify God and to enjoy those jobs as we work them. As a result of the fall, though, the Bible says by the sweat of your brow. You will work. But the commandment to rest comes after the fall. That means there was something broken down in our relationship with work. When sin entered the world. And I think it all goes back to the first commandment. I've told you this before. Every commandment is rooted in the first commandment. You can't violate the tenth one if you haven't already violated the first one. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't be an idolater. So why is God telling us that I need you to work, but because of sin, I also need you to rest? We didn't need to rest before the sin. Why is that? Because our natural being is to idolatry. 
No matter what it is, we will find a way to worship and to celebrate and to laud and to extol anything that is in God, including our work. We will see our work, our job, our income as a means of our survival, as a mean, uh, as, a, as our provider. And God makes it clear you will set time aside just with me and nothing else so that I can remind you that no work is not the provider. Work is not your fulfillment. I am your fulfillment. I am your provider. He gives us this commandment to rest because he knows of our bend towards idolatry. And it is so serious that God tells the Israelites, if you violate this, let's imagine why would they violate it? Because what they would see the need to work so much that they will work straight through their Sabbath. And God says, if you violate the Sabbath, you will be put to death. That is my time. That was the time he had commanded for them to set aside. Now, you may think, well, what's eight hours, God? They weren't working eight hours. You want to know how they worked? From sun up until sundown. That is when they work. So it is imperative that God says, no, you need a day. Well, you don't work. And so that is what he does. He establishes this pattern. And to prevent this robotic being towards work, he has given us a command to remind us that our identity is tied to our relationship with him. It's not tied into what you do. It's not tied into your job. It's not tied into your work. It's not tied into how much you make. Those are all the things that the world will use to convince you that you have value. But I will tell you this now. It doesn't matter what your job is. You can be the president, the president of the United States. If that life is not rooted in Jesus Christ, that person will die and go to hell. And that is the value of the life, not the work. The value of our lives is whether or not at the end of our lives we will be found faithful to Jesus Christ. Let's look at Ecclesiastes because Solomon actually has something interesting to say about this. Go to Ecclesiastes 2 and 18. Go to Ecclesiastes 2 and 18. One of the things that I find amazing that is if we actually would open up our Bibles... If we would actually read our Bibles, we would see that all the, that, the, that ails us in life can be found right here. Every truth. I don't need some guru. I don't need to step outside. I'm not a life coach. Everything I need to know about the truth is found right here in these 66 books. Look at what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 2 and 18. He says, I hated all my toil, all my work in which I work under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all which I worked and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the work of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has worked with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who didn't work for it. 
this is also vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the work and striving of heart with which he works beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. Listen to this. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the busyness of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This is also vanity and striving after when. Look at what Solomon says here. I think this is beautiful. He says that he was so dedicated to work that it actually made him miserable. Just in case you don't know what he's describing, he was so dedicated to work that it actually made him depressed. Now, when we read this, some of us probably could not even distinguish the difference between Solomon's condition and our own. Because exactly what he has described is what a normal work week looks like for most of us. Most of us hate the idea that we have to get up and go to work. We hate the idea that we're answering to somebody else. And then we think once we get done, we can disengage. But notice what he said here. He says, even when you're not at work, your heart doesn't find rest. What a miserable state for that to be in. And he's actually telling us that if you feel this way about work, then your life is out of order according to God's created order. Why? It goes back to pre-fall. Work was created, as he said, there is nothing better than for a man to eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work. I'll never forget, I was talking to a group of people at my job one time. I work at a Christian school. And they were making all these complaints and all this. And then they looked at me and they said, well, what about you? And I was like, I love what I do. And they said, no, you can be honest. It is so common for people to be miserable, but not just miserable, but to invite others into that place of misery. Because the last thing that you want to do is when you see somebody else finding fulfillment in their work is to remain unfulfilled. And so you will invite people into that space of misery because y'all know the cliche. What does misery love? Misery loves company. If we were called to work pre-fall, then that means that work was, in fact, designed for us and our enjoyment rather than a response to our sins. So why are so many of us so miserable working? Why are we so miserable going to work? 
Why are so many of us living our lives just to get to retirement and thinking then my life will find joy and fulfillment? By then, you may have the money to enjoy, but you will not have the body. You better find joy and fulfillment in where God has planted you. So many of us want to be repotted. You are not even growing and blooming and blossoming where God has already called you to be. And he says this. Why are we so miserable? He says, for this exact reason, you do all this work only to earn a wage. And then that work is somebody else's benefit. And look at the question that he asks. He says, what has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he works beneath the sun? And then he answers it. You know what kind of man that is? He says, the man whose life is work is a life full of sorrows, and his work is a vexation. What a miserable state. He says, look at this. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. You wake up with the misery of having to go into work, and you go to sleep with the misery of having had been at work. And you get up and you start the cycle all over again. And the reason we know that this is not a part of God's created order is because of the disproportionate effects that it has on our bodies when we carry this stress. God has not called us to just walk around with high blood pressure because we are not fully enjoying what he has set before us. Why are you getting migraines every week? Why can't you barely move your neck to the left and the right? Because your body is screaming at you that what happens on the inside spiritually affects what happens with you physically. And God is trying to get you to get back in order. No, he's not necessarily going to give you a new job. You need to be renewed in your heart and in your mind and in your spirit. And know that if I am here, I am here, not just for me, but because God has called me to be here. This is some kind of warning that we are getting from Solomon, and he's speaking from experience. And just to add context, not only is he speaking from experience, but he's speaking as a man whose work actually worked out for him. In all of history, there has never been a man richer than Solomon, and he's telling you it means nothing. You're going to get to the end of your life, as he had here, and you're going to look back, and you're going to say, was that my value? Was that work my value? And after 25, 30, 35 years, 40 years, they give you a little watch, and they send you on your way, and they never remember you. That can't be the way life has been called for us. And how many of us in this room, if we were being honest, would say that what he just described is a normal week for us? He just described many of our normal work weeks. And when he says that at night the heart doesn't rest, 
I specifically remember when I worked at Five Guys, so I was 16 when I got my first job. I was one of the original employees. I was the last original employee to leave. When I was there, we would get these rushes, and they would last about an hour. And it would literally be 250 people who would come there, bombard you, and then it would be done. And it was so stressful because you would feel all this stress of making burgers and you're greasy and you're staying. It's just terrible. And I remember those nights. There were so many nights I would go home. And when I would go to sleep, you know what I would dream about? Being at five guys in the middle of a rush. And I would wake up miserable because every time I would go to sleep, I was in the middle of a rush. At night, my heart didn't rest because I was internalizing all of the work that I was doing. There are even some of us in here who are still internalizing all of the rest that we're doing. Even now, perhaps you're thinking about deadlines and obligations and things that you have to get done because your week is already started. And while a lot of people can get off, you feel like you're the one who can't get off. But the unfortunate reality is that many of us are doing just what Solomon has described and we are running on fumes. And this is the reality. If you are working so hard to keep up appearances, to make ends meet, or whatever reason you'll find to validate that you're mentally, spiritually, and physically exhausted, then how are you useful to God? If God has called us to be ambassadors in our workplaces, but you hate going to the workplace, the work is a vexation to us, then how are you an ambassador of God there? If when you get home from work, you're too tired to do anything, too tired to fellowship with God, too tired to fellowship with your family, to love your spouse if you're having to play with your kids, to read your Bible, whatever the case may be, then how is what you're doing honoring God at all? Look at this. The most foreign part of this whole text for us is what he says right here. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat? Who can find have this enjoyment? See, God's design for work was that the work that he has called us to do. Yes, if you are somewhere, God has called you there was that that work would fulfill us and bring enjoyment to us. But that's the part that relates most closely to us in the fall that many of us don't feel the enjoyment. We feel the sweat of our brow part when we work. Some of that is as a result of the fall, but some of that is also because we tend to overcommit ourselves to the work because we view it as our means for success. So if the first point is that God is setting a precedent, then this is a sub point. So this is sub point A. It's the only one. God was protecting us 
from ourselves. Every commandment, by the way, is God protecting us from ourselves. Every single one. Everything that is a sin that God has told us to stay away from is God protecting us from ourselves. And here, in order to protect us, God has instituted the Sabbath. And the word from Hebrew of Sabbath literally means to cease. It is a day to cease from labor, to cease and desist. So this is a question that we have to ask because we're talking about the Sabbath. Are we required today to keep the Sabbath? And that brings us to point number two. Jesus is Lord over our rest. It is actually Jesus that is Lord of our rest. Let's go to Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. It says, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. This is an excellent verse in order to understand what our current relationship with the Sabbath is. Jesus permits his disciples to pluck grain for food on the Sabbath. And so I think we can see here that he is clearly reestablishing that there is a new standard for what the Sabbath is. What's the new standard? Jesus is the Lord even of the Sabbath. And I think this is perhaps most clearly seen for us in the verse that lines today's text, which is Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. And he says the crown in verse here. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why? Because my yoke is easy. Because my burden is light. Now, I use the Mark verse here so you would notice this. But Jesus says this right before he talks about being the Lord of the Sabbath. So what is happening here? 
Jesus is telling us that when you come to me, I am your Sabbath. I am your rest. You don't need to worry about finding a day or a right time or a right moment when you're in me, because when you're in me, there is no end to your Sabbath. See, before me, I had to command you to set aside a day. But now that you're in me and I am in you, you have entered into my eternal rest. So now perhaps we understand in the Bible when it says that in heaven there is no end to the Sabbath. Because for believers, there is no end to the Sabbath. That peace and love and joy that comes with the Holy Spirit is the Sabbath being lived out in us. And it's beautiful. When we come to Christ, one of his benefits is that we can now permanently enter into his rest. Now, coming to Christ, I tell you this all the time, does not mean there's an end to your problems. It does not mean there's an end to your suffering. It probably means more problems and more suffering. But what we learn from here is that we have a permanent escape in Jesus Christ. As the old folks used to say, I got a phone in my bosom and I can call them any time I need to call them. What that means is that there is not a time that he sleeps. There is never a time that he slumbers. He is always available to me. And when I need to go to God to escape the toils and the trials and the pressures of this world, all I need to do is say a prayer and I enter into his rest. I don't need a day. Because as as a believer, every moment is my rest. That's what it should be. If you have come to Christ, but you have only felt the weight and the burden of hidden sin, religious practice, strict obedience, then perhaps you have not come to Christ. Christ has promised rest to all of us who have found ourselves in him. Now, do Christians at times feel out of sync with that rest? Yes. So what can we do to enter into that rest? This is where I'm going to give you three practical steps from the Bible, not Brandon's wisdom, about re-entering into the rest of God. The first step is to pray, but also pray the Psalms. Pray and pray the Psalms. This is what David says when he's running from his son Absalom. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, oh, Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, And the lifter of my head, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. 
I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. See, David is running from his life for his life here from his son. And yet he is able to look up to the Lord. And he says that the Lord answered him. And he says when he got a response from the Lord, notice what he did. He says, I lay down. And I went to sleep. He took the burden of his problems straight to God. He didn't call everybody. He went right to God. And he says, and the Lord was faithful and responded and answered to him. And then he rested. That's the pattern. We can go to God. It is imperative that we go to God with the matters of our hearts and people. He will answer. And that should be how we find our rest in him. Second way we find rest in him. Make quiet time a priority. Make quiet time a priority. Mark 135 and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark. He, Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. There are multiple times in the Bible that not only does Jesus withdraw himself away from the people to pray, but he actually instructed us to do this as well. He says, do not be like the hypocrites. Do not be like the pagans. But when you pray, you go find yourself somewhere private. You isolate yourself from distraction. You go and you commune and fellowship with God and God alone. Quiet time from people to pray is essential. And let me tell you this. It doesn't just mean idle time. That's what I struggle with. It doesn't just mean go to sleep. But it means that you are fellowshipping with God. You are not just quieting those around you, but you are also quieting your own thoughts. The reason so many of us, when we go to pray, think about everything else while we're praying and restart the prayer like five times where we can finish it. And then it is like, oh, you know what? This is going to be a 10 second prayer because I keep getting distracted. The reason that is, is because we don't exercise that in our lives. We don't set aside intentional, quiet time when we say, I'm not thinking about that stuff. I'm just thinking about the Lord. I'm just fellowshipping with God. It's just me and him. You have to work that out in your spirit and in your life in order to keep your soul at peace and at rest with him. Now, what can this be? This can be praying. This can be meditating the scriptures. This can be walking. Listen to worship music or devotional, whatever. But it is time that you strategically set aside. This is not, oh, I got a few minutes in my schedule. No, you build your schedule around this quiet time that you have to have with God. And you tell people, look, it's me and the Lord. It's me and God right now. Give me however many minutes you need to take. But it's just me and him right now. I need this for my spiritual well-being. You tell them that's God's time. So the first one, 
is that we pray and we pray the Psalms. The second one is that we make quiet time a priority. The third and final one is confession. Confession. James 5 and 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. One of the things that torments so many believers, so many of us are tormented because we are harboring secret, hidden, private, under the rug, nobody knows sins. And it torments us. Because every time we come back in contact with other Christians, we're putting on this facade of who we want them to perceive us to be. And so what happens is, inwardly, the reason we don't have peace is because this sin that we're trying to hide is actually tormenting us. And let me tell you this, and I'm telling you from experience, experience, that that sin is like venom to your soul. And if you've ever done it, you know it's true. You know the feeling you feel when you try to not to look other Christians in their eyes when you try to avoid their gaze because you know what is actually going on when nobody else knows. And that toxicity in your heart leaves you restless. It leaves you agitated, frustrated, in anguish because you're so afraid that people are actually finding you out. So what does James say? He says that confession, confession to a faithful brother will lead to prayer and healing for your soul. It is such a foreign concept to us, but confession actually heals us. Because you get that venom of that secret private sin out You get into an accountability partner, and I'm telling you from experience, it's hard to keep sinning when somebody keeps asking you, are you still sinning? It's hard. Because that means every single time you're having to confess that to them, and they're holding you accountable, but they're restoring you in the scriptures, and they're praying for you. And I'm telling you, when you get it out, it's like therapy for your soul. You don't realize the relief of that burden until you actually release it out of your heart. And that reality is so true for many of us that we are so restless and anxious and irritable and frustrated and unfulfilled because we're harboring private sin. Find you somebody that you can go to, an accountability partner, and confess that to them. And it says that that confession heals our souls. We don't have to put up a facade or pretend to be this or that. Confession is good for the soul. And so as I close, we close with this. When God gave us his son, Jesus bore on his back the source of all of our torment. 
He took our sins. He took our shame. He took the guilt. He took the penalty of them. And as a result, he has given us a permanent Sabbath rest in him. The Bible makes it clear is that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. So if there is private sin, he will bring it up. And he will torment you about it. But if you are a Christian, he has called us to find our perfect rest and satisfaction in our eternal resting in him and from our sins to find joy and enjoyment totally in Jesus Christ. I pulled something from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Pastor Mike, you're like this. What is the chief end of man? Response, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's it. That is the chief end of man, is that I will glorify God in this life That my Sabbath begins in this life. And that I will enjoy him in this life. And I realize that this life for the Christian is just a rehearsal for the next life. There is never a point where I will never enjoy Jesus again. And if you're in this room... And you feel like I have not gotten to that place. I know I'm a Christian, but I am not in his rest. That I feel the burden of my life. I feel the burden of work. I feel the burden of if you're a student or wherever you may be in life making difficult decisions. That you feel the weight of that. Take that to Jesus in Prayer. Prioritize quiet time, specifically just you and God. Just you and him. Go to the Psalms. And if David can go to sleep while his son is trying to kill him, then you can go to sleep if those bills aren't paid right now. You can trust God can meet you there. You can enter his rest. And so I pray that after today's sermon that you have found and are finding and will find rest for your soul. If you're in this room and you're not a believer, it's like there is no chance I have rest. I don't feel restful. I don't ever feel rested. I always feel burdened by life. That is one of the benefits of coming to Christ is that you can enter into his rest. And this can be the day if he sovereignly reveals himself to you that you can enter his rest. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for those of us who are believers who need to find rest in him. That's me. Y'all pray for me. I'm going to pray for anybody who may be in his room and not feel that yet. Father God, we thank you for our time together. Lord, your word is so true and you are so faithful. God, you have provided us rest for our souls 
that is rooted in Jesus Christ. God, so many of us are reaching for fulfillment in so many ways. And God, I've been in that place. I've been guilty thinking that my degrees justify who I am. But God, if I have been justified by Jesus Christ, there is nothing else that can justify me. God, if I have been declared righteous because of Jesus Christ, then I don't need any other accolades. I don't need anything else. And so, God, if you have laid it on our hearts to pursue degrees or pursue a particular career, that you have done so so that we can be fulfilled in that. And, God, the only way we're going to be fulfilled in it is if that we glorify you in that space, is that we are ambassadors of God everywhere we go. So, God, if there are people in this room who have not entered into that rest, who don't feel like they're finding fulfillment in where they are currently planted, God, that you will cause them through this sermon to reevaluate their relationship with you. That they will press into what we have talked about today and realize that we cannot call ourselves Christians and not also feel that rest of God consistently. God, my prayer is that you will allow every one of us to enter into your rest. God, that the Sabbath that you have given us will not have an end. That we can wake up with the joy of the Lord. And through the course of our day, we can go to sleep with that same joy of the Lord in us. That you have called us to every place that we're in. God, if there's anybody in this room who does not know who you are, therefore they are not entering into your rest. God, let this be the day that you resist their will, that you overcome their will, and that you will sovereignly save them. It's not a decision they make. It's about you who have decided who you have saved before the foundation of the world. So God, I pray if anybody in this room doesn't know you, that you will reveal yourself to them. And that they will know what it means to rest in you. God, my prayer is that we will all take these three steps and apply them. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. And everybody say it, amen.